unwavering when we say Black Lives Matter. Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Ready for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is uh, co-host Scott Raven. Welcome, Scott. Greetings. Whoa, hot on the mic. How you doing, VJ? Hi, hi. Uh, it's a little loud. Okay, yeah. Um, okay, so our special guest is Professor Rick Jarreau, who is renowned for his groundbreaking work in the field of alternative vocation. Uh, the star of his book, Creating the Work You Love, founder of the Anti-Career Process, he brings 25 years of study and practice into the world's spiritual traditions, um, to the art and science of abundance and manifestation, and the, and the art and science of abundance and manifestation. He's a professor of religious studies at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, and a former Mellon Fellow in the Humanities at Columbia University. Joe is also an accomplished author, speaker, workshop leader, and astrologer, whose work is informed by years spent in India as a researcher and practitioner of yoga, meditation, and the healing arts. Integral to his message is the interface between intuitive inner experience and the effective action in the world. Welcome, Professor Rick. Welcome, Rick. Hi. Hi there. Hi, hi. Good, good. So uh, I guess we'll start the conversation off a little bit about, um, you know, empowerment. We talked a little bit about power in, in, in the title, you know, truth to power, being like mm-hmm. finding our truth and, and letting it empower ourselves in our communities. Uh, that's how we've been defining the the motto of the show, the title of the show. Um, so I'd love to hear your take on, uh, you know, how we can, what is truth and what is power, you know? Yeah. Briefly, in, 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 a, in a brief, in a uh-huh. or two. Right? Yeah, we can get into uh, it. You can get into the more nuances that, as we go along the conversation. Just the introduction, yeah. All right. Well, from where I'm coming from, um, Power is not something that you achieve. Uh, Power is already present. But because we're not present, we go off this and that tangent. Uh, So my experience is that the real power is is in the personal uh, connection to the power, the one power. Mm-hmm. And then that can take you in any direction. As far as truth is concerned, that's a big word. <laughs> and yeah. um, the dangerous people are the ones who think they know the truth to the exclusion of everyone else. So I like to have um, a little bit of, of humility uh, before that idea. Uh, having said that, um, one could argue that power comes the invisibly when you tap into the truth of your being. In other words, being who you are versus trying to be someone else. Mm. Yeah, and, and also I'm interested in the, the the idea of the one power and how that connects to uh, you know, Shakti or the divine power, the divine spirituality and how like we as individuals may have our connection to our individual understandings, but then they have, we're also connected deeper on a deeper level to the spiritual, uh, spirituality to the divine power and how that, how that works. Yeah. It's all, obviously it's all one power, but we, we get, um, 
we experience like different facets and different places where power operates. So there's in your own individuality, there's also the phenomena of social or political power. And then the power, uh, which we witness every day in the, the natural world, which I think part of the illusion is we think the natural world is like a board and we're pieces on the board that we walk upon it instead of being part of it. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and the other one thing I'll obviously one of the real challenges is in in the past of traditional societies, uh, what we call power was almost construed almost exclusively as social power. Um, you are your power is what you are in the society. Uh, that is particularly true in contemporary Western cultures because um, the large majority of this culture does not recognize or experience any power outside of themselves or the society, which is kind of the tragedy we're living in because you have 8 billion humans walking on this planet and trillions of other living beings and yet each of us thinks that we're an individual world unto ourselves. Mm. On the other hand, on the other hand, the struggle for an authentic individual life and expression of such has been a long one, you know, for millennia. Um, and we don't want to give up that hard-won consciousness of an individual. But I, I would argue that the, the challenge in our time is, is for the individual to be able to connect to the group in a way that is meaningful and contributes to the whole, but doesn't lose that sense of individuality. Yeah, and uh, that's very interesting. And I think that, do you think that there is like, uh, if there's eight... Um, billion people on the planet, the eight billion truths, or there's you're saying that there's basically like we're all connected, but also there's different facets of those truths within each individual, expressions of those truths. That basic uh, current is like inhabiting itself into the um, embodied, embodied in different ways. But it's still, it's just I'm trying to wrap my mind around the one and the many, like how that you yeah, know, I'm still trying, yeah. still trying to understand that, yeah. It's yeah. a tough one, and it, I don't know if we can understand it. I, I would say that um, you know Nietzsche had this great phrase about the scientists. You know, so so long ago, he said, he said they are not free spirits uh, because they still believe in the truth. This is in the genealogy of morals. Mm. Um, so there's truth, and there's truth. And do eight mil eight billion people have their own truths? Well. Eight billion people have their own experience, but those, that experience is modulated through language, which we all share, and millions of us share, and we communicate through that collective modality. So um, there's a great phrase they use in India, which translates into inconceivably one and different. Uh, that's kind of how I'm seeing it. We, we need to honor ourselves and our choices and our freedom but also understand the depth of which we are uh, interpenetrated, not only with one another, but with the earth and the air and the water and the fire, that we are part of this amazing phenomena. And um, 
they're both uh, they're both very significant. I don't think we can have one without the other. And we're failing miserably at both, by the way, because we're afraid to allow people to have make their individual choices, and we don't know how to live together. Um, if you if you dare spend you know 15 minutes, I don't know if you want to spend more, but going through something like Facebook, um, it reads to me like when I was in junior high school, we had like slam books of 12 year olds kind of saying bad things about each other, and um, it's like a cacophony of uh, opinion, and I'm right and you're wrong. So we have some work to do. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely interested in, uh, you, you made some comments on social power and how that maybe contrasts with, uh, your ideas of a, of an anti-career movement. Um, I know those, if you could talk a little bit about how you came, came to that, that belief and, uh, yeah, where, where that. Well, I, I, okay. First of all, it's not a belief. Uh, it's a practice. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the practice is what, what makes it different, so to speak, and continuing on this vein of thinking, the idea is that the source of one's career is not the society, it's not the economy, uh, it's not even the family, uh, but the ultimate source of one's work in the world is the source of all. So when you ask someone who you work for, ideally they would say the universe. And if you really have this understanding that you're working for the universe, then the universe you're giving you're opening the door for the universe to come in and help put you in the place where you need to be. So instead of creating <coughs> the life or the work you want, it's more about finding or or connecting to the alignment that is, so that you are in your right place at your right time. And that to me would be a good definition of power which then becomes effortless because you're not trying to manipulate or control. You're in your right place at your right time. And, you know, one way to do that is by letting, you know, we, we, not, we might not have, quote, the conclusive truth, but we all can be aware of the have-truths and the falsities that we tend to cling to um, and don't want to examine. And the more we can... Uh, strip away those layers of attachment, uh, illusion, like not really working things out for ourselves, uh, the free we are to be who we are. So now, um, you know, I'm thinking about like, you know, the, all these people, you know, usually in the traditionally in the, a lot of the literature, a lot of the uh, understandings we have is that we have uncontrollable, um, you know, birth that we're kind of trapped in samsara we're chopped in this cyclical nature of existence, of recurring nature of existence. Is there any way to flip it and say, you know, I came here for a purpose and own that, you know, I have a life mission. And is that just something we say or is that something you believe is is true? And how does that reconcile with the idea that maybe it's just a mental flip of like saying, OK, I, now I own the fact that I came here for a mission or a life vision. And then um, and then it becomes so, you know. That's interesting. Um, I don't know if I go that far as mission, mm. um, because mission implies that you're conscious of it. But from my own work, particularly in astrology, it's very clear that 
people, beings, souls come here because they have something to learn mm. or something to share. Um, and, and that to me um, is almost indisputable. Okay, now what was the first, the first thing you said was very important and I just lost it. The first yeah, thing I was saying about like how traditionally we think about in samsara we have uncontrollable oh, yeah. growth. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, got it. Yeah. yeah. You know, the flip that I'm, I'm thinking of is beginning to question this paradigm is it, it, as another patriarchal paradigm. Mm. Because the patriarchal paradigm sees this world as a bad place to get out of. Matter is a trap to get out of. Mm. And if you think that's an old, like, medieval notion, just look at all these people trying to, you know, going to the moon or Mars and thinking, oh, it'll, it'll, we'll change things that way. Um, no, what if the flip is not seeing the material manifestation as a trap or a prison, but as a gift? And, and we are here to create beautiful gifts and offer it up, you know, to the source of life. Uh, that changes the notion of escape to um, cooperation. And I think on the fundamental level, this idea, like underneath a lot of, even a lot of social justice movements, but certainly under, you know, wars and conquests and all these um, kind of mindless exercises of power, uh, is is the loss or the the just not perceiving that this world is a gift like we have to control destroy and get out of it i think what francis bacon and someone like that said you have to beat nature into submission uh this kind of thing so i would argue that the more mindfulness the more openness the more we can receive ourselves where we are um what we need to do unfolds we don't need to create uh stories that kind of obfuscate our vision. So also the conscious only model, it seems like all the phenomena is like part of consciousness or is it an, um, an embodiment of consciousness. So when we think about, you know, we think about matter and material, we think about the material world as being separate from consciousness. Now I, I'm starting to get exposed to ideas of, that you know everything is embedded with consciousness, or everything is intertwined with consciousness. So there's no way to separate exactly. the two. Yeah, yeah. That's how I'm seeing it more and more. Yeah, exactly. Um, William Blake had this great line. He said, "Eternity is in love with the productions of time." Mm. Um, I never understood that, or I always misread that um, because of my conditioning that like eternity is attached, attached to the time or wants. But it's in love with that 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 the divine consciousness um, is in love with and adores grass, trees, clouds, <clears throat> music. You know, everything is everything has a place, and that does not have to be um, about getting out of something. And I would argue the the new paradigm that I'm you know is beyond or after the patriarchal paradigm, which is getting out, is elevation, is let's get back in, let's be completely integrated into the world that we're in. Yeah, yeah, I think, I don't think integrating in, understanding the world we're in and understanding what it is, seeing it for what it is, is the main thing, like seeing it for the, 
you know, um, not putting pretenses around it or not putting our false illusions on it. I'm just separating out the, the half truths, as you were saying, the, the kind of lies you tell us as the attachments and shifting out for that goal that, um, that can help us, you know, come to a, a better understanding of the true nature of phenomena. You know, is that, is that yeah. kind of what you say? Yes, and but for me, it's not just like esoteric or philosophical. It's very mm. practical. For example, the other day I um, I was marveling at this oak tree across the street from where I live because it really doesn't lose its leaves. And I asked my the neighbor who is in the house right in front of the tree, um, do you know what kind of tree that is? And he said, I don't have the slightest idea. And this is the alienation that we don't know the trees we don't know the food we eat. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know the animals in our neighborhood. I, we've been encouraged to live in these little boxes, you know, and um, and we die there. Mm. So it's it's not just thinking, but like, can you make friends with the flora and fauna, you know, in your neighborhood? Can you come out with ways to? bring people in instead of like, I have to escape here, I have to escape there. Um, so that, you know, it's a very practical thing, becoming aware of everything that's in your field. Mm-hmm. That it, it's all part of consciousness, so it's all important. It's not like, you know, the truth is important and important and the garbage isn't. Like the current ecological disaster we've created is right out of that patriarchal paradigm that says, Matter is secondary; is not as important. We can, you know, we can do anything for the rivers and so on and so forth. I saw a, a a woman in a ceremony pray over a bucket of water for an hour and a half, talking to the water for an hour and a half. And I'll never have the same relationship to water. I'll never take water for granted again. And that I think is the challenge. So now you have a new book, um, that new, the crowd of longing, a new translation, echo aesthetic of a uh, study of Kalidasa's Megaduta. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and how it has to do with, uh, nature? I understand. And, uh, the, yeah. the, the, thematically, I'll, yeah. I'll try to put it. I'm sorry. What that has to do with nature and, and yeah. And basically what it has to do with nature and what you were speaking about the mythic memory. And, um, yeah. I'm not really sure. Yeah. I will, well, I'll put it in the context of what we're talking about also, like, <clears throat> like why do you write a book? You know, it's one question I often ask authors, and I notice how, um, how um, reluctant they often are. Uh, except one person, once I went to a lecture by um, Philip DeLorean, who writes about Native, contemporary Native American experience, and I asked him, why do you write this book? And I could see for about 10 seconds, he was like thinking, am I going to answer this guy? Am I going to? And finally said, I was, I was with my grandmother and she was on her deathbed. And I was asking her, is there anything you need, I need to know before you pass? And she said, I can't tell you anything. It's too painful. So he had to find out for himself. So I'm bringing that up to point out that books are not individual phenomena. There's always a relationship involved with it. In my own case, it was my academic mentor, Barbara Stolen Miller, at Columbia, who the first time I saw her, she was giving a lecture about Kalidasa, the great Shakespeare of India, so to speak. And when she mentioned his name, I saw this beautiful royal blue light just appear around her. 
and I realized, wow, she's, it's not just an academic project. She's she's receiving transmission. She wants to bring Kalidasa into the world. And that, to me, was the charge. Like, uh, I'm, I was doing this to honor my contract with her and Kalidasa and the whole lineage and to bring this way of looking at the world into the English language. Um, and the Megaduta is a poem, an ancient, like, 4th century Sanskrit poem about a, uh, uh, actually, 4th century B.C., about a cloud. About, well, it's about a, a lovelong semi-divine being called a Yaksha, who is in exile from his home and his beloved and living on a mountaintop. And pining away in agony, he spots a cloud in the sky and begins to talk to the cloud and asks the cloud to deliver a message to his lost beloved. And the rest of the whole poem is this message that he tells the cloud, and it's all about the journey of the cloud through the landscape of India. So the poem depicts the various landscapes, the mountain landscape, the the river landscape, the plains, the different people who live in different places. It depicts the landscape in um, excruciatingly, amazingly accurate detail. Whereas at the same time, that same depiction... um, is metaphorical. Um, as an example, at one point the cloud comes to Mount Kailash, which is the mythical abode for of Shiva, and the cloud is shining its twilight and through the upraised branches of a pine tree. And the author sees this, the red glow of the twilight through the pine tree. The tree becomes the arm become the upraised arms of the god Shiva. The red becomes the blood of this elephant hide that Shiva killed this elephant and made its skin into a drum. And the drum is the thunder of the cloud. Now, on one hand, you can say, oh, that's a really ingenious metaphor, you know, and, you know, personification of nature that primitive did. That's how contemporary post-Cartesian man tends to look at it. But another way of looking at it is that this procession and these gods and this twilight ceremony is actually happening. It's actually like the natural world actually is a celebration. Um, and we don't see it because we're too busy going places. And in fact, in one point early on in the poem, uh, the, the question is brought up, how can a cloud that is made of material elements, earth, wind, flame, water. How can a cloud carry the living meaning of a message? And um, the answer is very interesting. It says that the yaksha is not concerned about this because his heart is smitten, kam artahi. And, and those people whose hearts are like smitten like this do not distinguish between chetanas, chetaneshu, which is usually translated as the inert from the alive, but it could also be consciousness and matter, what's living and what's not living. So the idea is that through the deep opening of the heart, uh, you can begin to experience nature in a different way. And that's what the poem does. It, it's, an, it's a glorious, detailed description of the natural world that is not separated from the pining heart of the yaksha, that is not separated from 
the mytho history of India. They all they all become one landscape, and I find that an incredibly nourishing way of looking at the world. Mm. So now, in this uh, worldview, we have like a connection with nature, connection with uh, you know the energies. But now, in, in today's society, you know, I feel like people are trying to numb themselves from feeling anything, and they, they, you know they they go through these you know coping mechanisms of um, whether it be drinking or whether it be uh, shopping or addictions in order to cut away from you know be like a good consumer rather than. Um, trying to get in touch with the deeper energies and to what extent can we break free of that? Can we like really, you know, encourage people to, and it's scary sometimes to confront the, the, um, you know, awesome nature of, uh, awesome, awesomeness of nature and the, the going out and trying to find ways to, to go out there and break free of these numbing factors. Um, and even to some extent, you know, um, when we have psychiatric medications being administered, to people rather than confronting the truth of the author psyche is trying to tell them, you know, it seems like we have all these ways of cutting away from the, the embodied truth rather than, and trying to continue the machine. What is your view on, on like that kind of a mentality? Um, my view is, as you said, uh, it's incredibly difficult to break free of this because it's, it's, it's instituted as a way of life that appears to be normal. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure. I don't want to botch his name. Johari, that is this journalist who wrote a, a beautiful book called, it's the, the title of the book is Lost Connections. And it's all about depression and psychiatric meds, and, which he took for years. And he comes up with the, the fact that the statistically a much stronger cure for what we call depression is having meaningful connections with people. And my sense is the, the way through the way out of it, it, it cannot be done by an individual. You need to have a supportive community. That doesn't mean you have to live with these people, even though that's one path, path I'm taking right now, but you have to have a group of like-minded people who can support each other in being positive uh, instead of just being passive. Uh, and it's, I think it takes a village, as they say, in order to encourage one another not to spend all of our life drinking beer and watching football. Um, why is, are things like football so popular in America or in the world, soccer? You know, because they, you, they allow you to get absorbed in the drama so you don't have to deal with where you are. Mm. And they, you know, they also reflect some very deep psychic processes, you know, the alchemical process of, you know, polarities, yin-yang, you know, the, but nevertheless, the, in order to beginning to see through the dis society of distraction, uh, you need the support of other people. It's, uh, I believe the esotericist Alice Bailey once said that in this age, which some people call Kali Yuga, some people call it something else, but in this age, it's very difficult for an individual even to succeed in meditation because the the air is so filled with advertisements and rhetoric and all the rest. So meditation in a group is much more powerful. You get a lot more support. 
and I think we need we need to um, re uh, instigate redevelop community in a new and freer way. Um, that's my current take on what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, community is very good. And I think that it's important to, um, you know, encourage each other and, and to do a supportive network. I think that we have a, we have the systems in place right now and being able to, and what, I don't know whether, you know, people think about individual heroic efforts to, you know, milestones, but those milestones, those people who revolutionize thought are coming out of a whole movement of, of people, a generation of people who are pushing rather than one individual person. It's a whole community, whole flow, whole wave of thought that um, that is pushing that direction. So we have to kind of, you know, on the one hand, we have to kind of be aware of what our community is experiencing and at the same time, you know, do our part to, to guide it towards, guide the, the zeitgeist towards the realizations that we feel are important. But at the same time, it's like reaching back to the past reaching back to the far past to, to get those wisdoms as well as living in the, in the present and, and being aware of our communities and what they're experiencing now. So that balance between the past and the, and the, and the present is another theme that seems to come up. Um, you know, like, you know, being able to reach back and, and draw from thousands of years of wisdom of, uh, of our fellow um, writers and fellow people uh, and being able to embody it in today's life, you know, today's, today's world. That's interesting. It's really interesting. Um, hmm. I don't know what I would say to that, but I think it's, I, I think um, there's a lot of truth to that. The problem I have with movements or the problem I see with movements, quote movements, is that movement usually means I'm moving against something. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And when you're moving against something, you're going to create the opposite, you know, in, in a new war. So I like uh, uh, R. Buckman's The Fuller's Dictum, which is you don't change a system by fighting it. You change the system by building a system that's so much better that it makes the old system obsolete. And this is what I look at. Um, if someone, like, tells me everything that's wrong with society or the I, you know, thanks, but I already know that. Can you demonstrate a better way? Are you living in a way? Are you, are you dealing in a way that makes it better? Um, are you, uh, here's a nice one, uh, Sounds True, who published me um, on their organizational board. You know, they have president, vice president, treasurer, you know, all that stuff. And at the end, they have dogs because they created a culture where people can bring their dogs to work. They have hired a designated dog babysitter you know and and for that reason lots of people work it sounds true and would, would rather work there than make twenty thousand dollars more working for a big company because the change is manifested in the way they're living so that's what i you know when i see somebody doing something or making something or living in a way that's that's wow that's a real solution that's inspiring but just telling me everything that's wrong no, that's just so easy. You know, mm. what, you know, have, are you doing any better? Or are we going to be animal farm all over again and, you know, recreate the same inequality, injustice, destruction of nature, the whole thing. So 
Um, one of the gifts of the pandemic, I think, is that more people are gardening, are growing their own food, are finding ways to um, feel good without having to go to the movies or go out to dinner. You know, um, it's it, it detaching us from the machine and finding out, wow, we still we feel good. In fact, we even feel better. But can you show me a better way of doing things? Um, and that, to me, uh, is the challenge. Now, can you speak a little maybe on... Um, it, it, it appears you've you've uh, traveled quite a bit and, and visited some other countries, and maybe how um, how that differs, I guess, from the United States. Uh, it looks like you were recently in Poland. Um, kind of the mindsets that that is it differ from country to country, and some of the other ways in some other areas uh, that people I'll be are finding. As candid as I can with this, because one of the reasons I was traveling this year. I was literally, I had, you know, it wasn't the top reason, but I had, I had my eye open for a good place to live because I was so disconcerted and disappointed with what's going on in the United States. Mm-hmm. I was in this la- in the last, the last year or six months even, I've been in Greece, Italy, Poland, and uh, Serbia. So it's just a couple of countries. But the first thing uh, I realized is that the whole world is the same. There's no escaping the, because the real social power in the world are not the governments, but the multinational industries that are, you know, ubiquitous everywhere. So I didn't see much of a difference. Now, having said that, there are differences according to, um, I think, national characteristics and history. For example, the Eastern European countries, Poland, and uh, Serbia seemed much less uptight about COVID. You know, they were taking some precautions, but they weren't in the mania on the same level that other countries were. Then you get Greece, which was really interesting because the government was extremely, you know, much more strict than the United States, uh, especially last year. But then all of a sudden, the second summer came up and they realized that if we don't open our borders, we're going to sink into into um, <clears throat> not just debt, but forever bankruptcy because their whole economy is based on uh, tourism. So they had to open up, and uh, I noticed how happy people were that you know other people were there because they had no work, no business for over two years. But you know the general mentality was not that much different. Uh, except um, one interesting thing, culturally, um, I actually got COVID in Greece. I was in the hospital for a few days, and I got out and, you know, quarantine. I was fine. And my great big hospital bill in Greece was zero, <laughs> whereas in America it would have been thousands of dollars. Yeah. Um, so, you know, on those levels, there are differences. Um Italy was interesting because there's a kind of historic love of fascism in Italy and the government was coming out with all these proclamations. You can't ride on the train. You can't do this. You can't do that. But on the ground, it was much less um, uh, anxiety, fear. You know, it was just much more kind of normal life with people wearing masks in public spaces. So quite frankly, I would say the similarities outweighed the differences and the the great similarity is that the machinery is in place 
to inundate the planet with fear and uh, the masses respond to fear and William Blake going back how many hundreds of years 1750 I, he, he said it very clearly he he railed against the conspiracies of the priests and the kings so for our culture instead of priests we could put in quotes scientists uh, and politicians. And the point is that if you make someone feel that they are inherently deficient, then they can be much more easily controlled. So unfortunately, I don't see many differences around the world. Um, and yet, in any place I've been in the world, when you get on the ground, you get in people's homes, like there's none of that. So it's a strange phenomenon. You know, I know you, you express some uh, um, skepticism about movements, but at the same time, it seems like, um, you know, when you think about Shakti, when you think about divine power flowing through you and, you know, flowing through you, the love, it seems like there is there is some kind of people who oppose that or don't see it clearly. And maybe they are working against it. Or maybe we shouldn't focus on that. I don't know. It just feels like, you know, there are people who are rallying against rallying for or creating a, a stigma around um, the kind of movement uh, or the kind of heart movement that you're talking about. And they're like, oh, we know we have to go towards um, more secular, more, you know, materialistic scientific materialism or whatever kind of philosophical movement they feel is uh, in the, in the ethos aether at that time. But they feels like we're kind of working against a resistance at the same time at the very least. You know? All right. Well, two two things about that. One, I, I would not say movements are inherently bad. I mean, we need movements. Yeah. Where would we be without a civil rights movement, without a labor movement? Mm. Um, but we could also see, like, just look at the French Revolution, how easily they turn into their opposites. Um, and um, you know, uh, not everybody uh, is a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King, and even yeah. they had their moments when they can, couldn't control the thing. Um, so I think we need our movements, but we don't need them to be the determining factors in our lives. As far as the very real ignorance, negativity on the planet, uh, the, the, what I've worked with for years that has helped me deal with this is this image of if you're in the city and you're going down the steps of the subway one morning, or one afternoon, it's right before rush hour, and you get to the bottom, and the doors are locked, and there's a big sign, you know, this entrance is closed, please use the entrance across the street. Um, well, if you're like me, you try to slip through, but you can't. So there's nothing you can do but start walking up the stairs. At that moment, this mass of humanity is running down the stairs. And are you going to start jumping up, jumping up and down saying, hey, you know, the gate's closed. You're not going to get in. You're just going to get run over. Maybe one or two people will look at you and say, why are you going up the stairway? Uh, I don't think right now we can um, do much. I don't see anyone being able to do much on a macro level. But mm -hmm. the micro level, uh, there's room for leeway. There's community. There's land. There's some freedom left. Uh, there are ways to start businesses or start, you know, support yourself. Um, 
And I like what Adlai Stevenson said about Eleanor Roosevelt. I don't know who said it, where it came from, but he said she would rather light a candle than curse the darkness. Uh, my sense is that by lighting a candle, you do more. Um, I knew some people up in Kingston, Ontario, who were sending their kids to choir uh, every Sunday. And every Sunday afternoon, like every, the, the, the boys, they didn't want to go. Uh, they were very edgy about it. And eventually, it took a while, but eventually it came out that the priests, or some of the priests in the choir, were, were sexually abusing some of these boys. So the question is, now what do we do? And they, I, I thought they did an amazing thing. The community, uh, instead of going to court or going to the newspapers, and of course the church denied it, you know, um, they held a, a, a nightly candlelight vigil in front of the church. They didn't try to change anyone's opinion. They just held the truth up in the air. They held the candles up in the air every night, and that drew enough attention that uh, the church officials finally had to come to terms with what had been going on. So I like that. Like, show me a way that's working, and we're all going to, you know, it, it has a better chance of succeeding. Um, even, and, you know, the big elephant in the room, in many rooms, capitalism, um, you know, capitalism has done amazing things on Earth um, for the good, uh, as, well as, as well as for the bad. Uh, and the question is not, you know, writing poems about how capitalism is inherently bad. It's like saying the air you breathe is inherently bad. We're in it. But what alternatives can you offer? You know, what alternative ways of sharing goods and services and sharing time and energy can you offer? And that, to me, is what is valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, just... we don't, we don't, we are, especially in America, the, the historical memory of America is amazingly short. Now, you said we can go back, you know, for thousands of years now and listen from, you know, other places. Yes and no, because we can, but we generally we don't. Um, the historical memory in America is like, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 years. Um, when you really look back at the history of the planet, and you see the routine, ongoing um, experience of war, murder, rape, uh, torture, sacking cities. You know, this this earth is not a paradise. Now, can we make in that go in that direction? Hopefully, but that's not what the earth is. And the humanistic vision that kind of you know thinks we're going to turn this earth into a paradise and we don't need anyone to help us or anything is deeply flawed. Mm. Yeah, I'm just reflecting also on your um, the image of the person going down to the subway and seeing is blocked, and then oh, this whole crowd comes through, and then ultimately we have to trust that they'll see for themselves that the way is blocked, otherwise they'll knock it down, and then it'll turn out that that we perhaps we were wrong that there was a path there, but otherwise they'll have to all turn back, and we have to just trust that the, there's a fact of the matter that the path is either blocked or is not blocked, and they have to see it for themselves, you know, ultimately. But you know, and trust that yeah. their ability to see it, yeah. And that, yeah, yeah, and 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 that's that's a real to me ego leveler uh, that I cannot 
tell you what's best and what you you need to experience. I don't think anybody can. Mm. Uh, but can we give each other that that freedom to experience what we need to experience? Um, we're you know, doing our best to keep things healthy, um, but understand that every and this is where the individuality comes in. Every individual has their own path, their own truth. Um, can we honor that and still live together? The question. I don't have an answer. Yeah. It really blows my mind the fact that, you know, I think there's, there's a real tendency in me to think that when you see something as true, that we have to pr- pr- propagate it. You know, that we have yeah. to say, you know, look, look, the, this is the truth. This is the truth. And tell people. But ultimately, maybe there's not, there's a role for just trusting that people can see the truth and just embodying what our own truth or what our own calling is in our own micro level, but not like feeling the need to go out there and, you know, I don't know, there's this whole idea of spreading the good news and all this kind of thing and the idea of propagating the faith and propagating the the um, the truths that we think we live by, but perhaps there's a quieter way of doing it is what I'm getting out of this conversation. Yeah, that, that yeah. quieter way to me is demonstrating uh, something more life-affirming. Um, when I work with Suzaki Roshi, um, and he would ask you, like, you know, a question, like, what is the answer? And you say universal love, and you just... He'd like look at you like you're gonna knock you out of the room and say, "Demonstrate that," yeah. you know, and that's the challenge, like to demonstrate it. Um, so, yeah, yeah, and and um, you know where we where I'm living now is an interesting um, case study because we're five people in a house and one refrigerator and we have different diets there are two people who are confirmed vegans you know uh two of us are not one is in the middle and we all share the same refrigerator and we have no problem because we just mm-hmm. you know kind of accept what you know where everyone's at where i know some people get really offended if somebody's eating something that they don't like you know mm. yeah to be able to respect everyone's path as being their path and you know, not kind of feeling the need to micro-control everyone, you know? And you put, that's a good word used, the need, that yeah. need to micro-control everyone. It's coming from our lack of abundance. It's coming from our lack of power. It's coming from our fear-based way of life that if something is too different, it's scary, and we have to obliterate it or ignore it. But in fact... Um, a good example of this is I had a, a friend who went to India and he met a very wise person there and asked him, why are you coming to India? And he said, to get enlightened. And this person just laughed. He said, that's not why you came to India. He said, why did I come to India? He said, because you're not comfortable with everything and everyone. Mm-hmm. Think about that. The more power you have, you can allow everyone else to have their own journey. The ant, the cat, your kids. You know, instead of, um, as you said, getting up on the pulpit. Um, you know, not only do we not like it when other people tell us what to do, we don't even like it when we tell ourselves what to do. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's absolutely uh, spot on. And I think you can almost gauge a person's level of abundance by how much control they don't need. How much power they don't need. 
And sure, if it's your job, you know, it, when my kids were little, it was my job to hold their hand and make sure they cross the street safely. But it's not my job to tell them what to believe in, what books to read, or even what life experiences to have. You know, it's their journey. And um, I, I kind of deeply respect that. Um, and some of us will have to, as you said, some of us, and maybe all of us, have to learn the hard way. Um, but at least you've learned it. Yeah, I was wondering if you could speak at a time in your own life, maybe, that that you encountered a block, kind of like the example that you gave, um, and and you altered your, your path upon coming to some sort of block and, and ways with which, which you did that. Hmm. Interesting, because I, I often did not alter my path. I often just um, affirmed and asked for the path. So, for example, as a graduate student, I had a scholarship, a potential scholarship, to go to India um, for a year and continue my studies. But in order to finish the graduate program, I had to pass a German exam. And people rarely pass it the first time, and I did not pass it. And I didn't know what was going on. Theoretically, I couldn't go to India, so that's the block. And Mm -hmm. then I received a a letter from a teacher of mine in India said, I'll see you soon. And I just said, okay, I'm going to India. I don't know how. But I just felt I was going. And a couple weeks later, I got a call from the teacher who I didn't even know and just said we spoke to the head of the department and we decided that your exam wasn't quite fair because you're a religious student. Everyone else is an art history student. So we're giving you another German exam in religion. They had me translate a passage of Max Weber on Buddhism in India, which I could translate it even, even if I didn't know German. So in that case, the obstacle was removed, I would say, by the universe and by my alignment uh, with the universe. Um, Another time, I was in a class. This is also when I was in college. I took a writing class. And the teacher, who's quite a well-known writer, he he asked us a very good question on the first day of class. He asked every student who our favorite writers were. And people all giving, you know, very well-known writers, Flannery O'Connor and James Joyce. Or he asked us our favorite books, actually. And it, when it became my turn, I said, uh, my favorite books are the Bhagavad Gita, the Bible, and the Eating. And this guy looked at me like I was from out of space. He just, I, I, and I knew right away that this class was, was not going to help me. So I took the risk. I left the class given by the famous writer. In you know, Columbia, they have different sections of the same course. And I took the same class with another not famous writer who wound up being the, the supportive person in getting my first book published. Great. So it, it was about following my heart in every case. Yeah. I think that's a question, I think for people who are um, kind of in questioning or in seeking mode, is being able to tune in to their uh, their truth, their truth, rather than like the noise that we hear. You know, like you know, we think about um, uh, there's a psychological term I forget the name of it, but like when we appropriate other people's voices into ourselves, and we're kind of hearing, you know, our father or or our roommate or our brother speaking inside of our own head, rather than hearing our own voice, a projection of their voice rather than our own voice. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of here, stuck in limbo here because, quite frankly, I don't know if there's a such thing as one's own voice in the end. But there is the thing about not being mistaking your voice for everybody else's voice. Yeah. Um, and I would say that ultimately it's called intuition. Yeah. And when we go to school in this culture, we internalize so many voices of other people. Um, but how do you get your own voice? And yeah. they often ask you to, quote, think for yourself, even though you're reading what everyone else wrote. But what is what they fail to mention is that any is that thinking is still a collective. It's someone else's voice. You don't have your own thoughts. It's language. It's been given to you. The the real that following your heart, that intuition, it, that power comes out of stripping away the false voices and getting into quiet presence. Then something emerges, which is much more resonant with who you might be. I see, I see. So, um, now in the last five minutes, I just want to remind listeners this is the Truth to Power Show and Ready for Brooklyn. We're here with Professor Rick Juro and co host uh, Scott Raven. Um, so, we're just about to end. I just want to say uh, you're listening to Ready for Brooklyn, independent listener supported radio. Um, you know, thinking of community, Ready for Brooklyn is a free and open platform to our community, promote media literacy, education, free expression, public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us continue to stay on air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at slash donate If you use Amazon, you can donate in a way that costs you nothing by going to slash amazon and register Radio for Brooklyn as your Amazon small charity. And if you're listening to this in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app iPhone or Android, develop the App Store for iPhone or Google Play Store for Android. Um, you know, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter for latest news about new programming, upcoming RFB events. You can sign up already for Bloomberg.org slash newsletter. Okay, so we have about a few more minutes left. Um, well, why don't you tell people where they can uh, find your work or more information about you? Okay. Yeah. I'll do that, but I want to I want to go back to one thing you said which I think is really important. Yeah. I think part of the reason that we get so overwhelmed by you know, advertising of voices is because we are we're conditioned to be fundamentally lazy instead of trying to find out what's real for ourselves. For example, somebody says something like, oh, the government is terrible. Well, what is the government? You know, what does that mean? Who's your government? You know, you have no idea. You're just spouting a word. It's a nominalism. It's not real. Do you know your elected representative? Have you met with them? You know, it, it's not, you know, whenever you start talking in generalities and, and um, cliches, you know, uh, the government, uh, the socialists, the anti-vaxxers, you know, put, you know fill it in. It, it means you're too lazy to find out what's really going on for yourself. You're just kind of using these constructs that everyone uses to make each other feel good and not look at what's there. Mm. There is no government. There are people who are in positions of power, and they're all different. And and so can we be a little bit more nuanced about this? And that's what I try to do in my own work. 
Uh, Scott, you had something you wanted to bring in before we end? You want to say anything more, Scott? No, no, that that's that's okay. quite about it for now. But I, I enjoyed this conversation some more. But I'd like to definitely follow up with and ask ask of you after this for sure. Well, my own my own work is you just find it at r i c k j a r o w rickjarrow dot com. You can find everything there. I do work around trying to create meaningful vocation, uh, community. Um, non-denominational spiritual practices. We have a group, the Fruits of Ananda, that we meet and help each other manifest things which are both meaningful and powerful. And you can find that at uh, rickjarrow.com and all the books are there and all that stuff. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's been really great having a conversation with you. We had a previous conversation in, uh, earlier on in the show, um, uh, History. So this is our 200th episode we're, we're, we're just uh, doing today. Uh, so it's a very great uh, anniversary of the show. Uh, about four years we've been doing it. So I hope people will go back and listen to your first episode uh, earlier on in the show's uh, incarnation. And uh, definitely follow up with you and your, and your website and your work. Um, you know, Christine Mann Library collected your work. So if people want to stop by Christine Mann Library in New York City, if they're in New York City, definitely look us up. And we can, you can, they can check out... Um, Rick's book, uh, The Cloud of Longing. So yeah, really you know what I try, yeah, what I tried to do with The Cloud of Longing is write a book about you know, Sanskrit aesthetics that could be read by somebody who's not a Sanskritist. Mm. You know, and that's why one reason I love the Christine Mon Library. I used to go there all the time because there's just a lot of good stuff. There. Thank you, thank you. All right, guys, thanks so much. Thanks so much for being here. Thank and you. Hope thank you. Everyone has a happy holidays. Thank you. You too. All right, well. take care. Be well.